Welcome back, or welcome to, if it is your first time listening, to Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. Today I will be speaking with Laura Marie Bernard, who is the author of The Yellow Rose of Texas, The Song, The Legend, and Emily D. West. This book is available now. The Legend of the Yellow Rose of Texas holds an indisputable place in the Lone Star culture. Tethered to a familiar song that has served as a Civil War marching tune, a pop chart staple, and a halftime anthem. Almost two centuries of Texas myth-making successfully muddled fact with fable and song. The true story of Emily D. West remains mired in dispute and unrecognizable beneath the manipulative tales that grew up around it. The complete truth may never be recovered, but author Laura Marie Bernard seeks an honest account honoring the grit and determination that brought a free black woman from the abolitionist riots of Connecticut to the thick of a bloody Texas revolution. A Lone Star native who grew up immersed in the Yellow Rose legend, Bernard also traces other stories that legend has obscured, including the connection between Emily D. West and plans for a free black colony in Texas. Laura Marie Bernard is an award-winning Texas journalist and author whose books focus on great Lone Star stories sifted through a modern lens. She earned her undergraduate degree in journalism at the Mayborn School of Journalism at the University of North Texas. She earned her master's degree in extension studies at Harvard University, where she studied journalism and museum studies. Now, before I bring Laura Marie on, I do want to let you know um, that we did already record the episode, and there were some technical difficulties. Um, I did record this with Skype, and usually I don't have any problems with Skype, but this time we did. Um, and we actually had to switch over with how we were recording it about halfway through, so I do apologize for that. But it is a great episode, and man, we really uncovered some really cool history and some things you didn't know and some ties to Texas you didn't know all the way up into the Northeast, into the Mid-Atlantic. So I uh, hope you really do enjoy the episode. Laura Marie, thanks for being on. All right, well, I did, when I was reading the book, and it was, it was really cool because I feel like it's it's all-inclusive. Because your book, it doesn't only attempt to uncover the history of the truth behind the song and Emily West, but it also gives a bit of a musical history and a history of the times of Emily West. For instance, the version of the song people probably know best is from the mid-20th century, but it's existed in various forms for at least 100 years prior to that. And in the book, you talk about its origins and its use in minstrel shows. Can you share a bit of the history of the minstrel shows before we get to Emily and its use in uh, shows where blackface was used? Yes, yes. I think that was, um, and you're right, you could do a book just on the song, just the history of the song, but um, that's not what I do. I also tried to link the song to the legend of Emily West as the Yellow Rose of Texas. So you're absolutely right about that. Okay, so the song, which is where the book starts, it starts in the mid-century when the song was at its height. In 1955, the song was so popular, it was it knocked Rock Around the Clock off of the top perch. So it was the number one song in America, but it was also the number one song in the entire world. So, um, And in some parts of the world, it's still used today as a, as a marching, like a war march song. And that's usually in Eastern Europe. But to go back to your point, um, yeah, so I was very interested in the song. I did not know 
where the song came from. I grew up in Texas, and so I've heard the song my whole life. Um, it's embedded in the culture. In fact, today you can drive around and you can still see like four trucks that have the yellow rose on it. You can go to the state of Texas and buy a yellow rose license plate and privatize it. So yellow rose is very much embedded in the Lone Star culture. But the song itself was never written in Texas. It was written in New York, and you're right. It was part of the blackface minstrel uh, background. Uh, Christie's Plantation Metalities, if you go to page 52 of that very, very old book, you will see the original um, words for the Yellow Rose of Texas, which, by the way, are so racist today yeah. that if you were to go on internet, you would have a disclaimer saying you're about to read some very offensive stuff, which I think I mentioned in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, what ended up happening with the Yellow Rose of Texas, the reason the song was written was not as a homage to Texas. It was part of a compilation of scripts that they were putting together for the flowers of the state. So you have all kinds of flowers of the states going on. You have the Rosebud of Virginia. You have other things like that. And Yellow Rose of Texas was just one of them. As it was going through the um, plays and performances, um, it was it was kind of just rewritten and reused and re just redone in many, many different ways to use whatever the, the skits and the performances that the black minstrels were doing at the time. Um, so for a very, very long time, you did not know who wrote the song. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, it was always considered an anonymous song. And um, so it just happens that now academics have determined who probably wrote the song. And he was also a black uh, blackface minstrel performer who was um, part of the Christie minstrels. And he's the one who actually probably put the tune down to it. So when the tune was put to it, it again became very popular again, and it made a lot of money for the publishing company. So I think the biggest takeaway that I found that she, when I was doing the read that this song embedded in Texas um, culture to the point that it still lingers today is a very important song. It's still very important in other parts of the world. Um, it was never written for Texas. It was never written as a legend. It was written as a blackface minstrel skit. And that's where it began. Um, so there you have it. So that's where the melody, the tune gives us life. But Emily West doesn't start in Texas either. We don't, we don't start in Texas. Right. We don't even start in San Jacinto. We start in Connecticut. No. <laughs> right, right. We do, we do. So if you read the book, I try to make a link uh, between the time of Emily D. West and the time that the song was going on because there's a very, very good possibility, although there's no academic reference or um, it's very possible that the song was something that she heard because she did start in Connecticut. You're right about that. And then she travels to New York. Um, so I believe that and it's what I put in the book. I believe that she did that because she was connected to abolitionists in Connecticut who were um, very badly treated and moved to New York um, in order to kind of 
get themselves together with other abolitionists and maybe have some more uh, clout and more protection for each other. Um, so you can read about that in the book. But uh, when she does get to New York, um, she was very close to some of the minstrel players who were very popular at the time. So there's, it's completely uh, possible that this free black woman of color um, did indeed uh, hear the song, but did it? Did she think it was her song? I know she did. Um, Emily, um, as a free person of color, was in um, in New York, and she signs a employment agreement. She was not a. Um, some people like to try to call her an indentured servant, um, but it's pretty clear that she had a work contract with mm-hmm. James Morgan, who, of course, if you're into Texas history, you know him as the commander of the forces in Galveston during the revolution. So um, she comes down and when she comes down, she basically does her job. She, she works. She um, there's various ideas of what she did there, but she was a very important person there. You, you have to expect that she was given some position of um, of uh, what you might call responsibility because she could read and write. It's very clear she could read and write. Um, and so she's doing when the siege of 1836 happens and, um, you know, Santa Anna comes through. He takes her prisoner. He takes probably everybody who was left at New Washington, which is where she was working. Um, she probably, he probably takes everybody who was left um, as prisoner at that time. Then, of course, they go to the Battle of San Jacinto. She is there. Um, I talk a little bit about what happens at the Battle of San Jacinto from the Mexican perspective, which is one that we tend to try to overlook a little bit in America. And, and Yeah, and before we Texas, get to that, though, I want to – because I just want to – before we get to there, because I just want to let people okay. – you know, I kind of want to let everybody know that there's so much more than just you know that to the book because when she's in New York City, there's – I mean, you go really in depth in the book too, and I think this is what people will really appreciate too to bring her uh to Texas and to bring her story and her narrative to Texas. You also bring in the narrative of uh Joycelyn Levette and the Tappan brothers too, who are really important to um you know to yes. you know why people are coming in and in fact, there's going to be a black colony that's going to, a free black colony found in Texas, which is how you know which you know is part of her yes. the story too and um, you do a great job of, of of tying all these things together, and that's a really important part of the book too. So it's more than just you know who is Emily West and you know how did this you know we're trying to find the origin of the song. It's hey, this is the origin of a part of the Republic of Texas, and later yeah. what becomes the state of Texas that people just don't know about, and that's why I think everybody would enjoy reading this book. Yes, well, thank you for saying that because. Um, a lot of times, uh, uh, the legend, they like to hear about the song, they like to hear about Emily, they don't like to hear about the parts of, of my books that I think are the most important. So thank you very much for asking me about that. I will be happy to talk to you about that. So, um, yes, the, the way I found this out and the way that I started down this particular road was um, Emily's work contract has been found. Um and on it, there, there's the name of James Morgan. There is the name of Emily, where she has signed it herself. There's the name of the attorney. And then there is the name of Simon Joycelyn. And um, I wondered who he was. 
I thought, that's a name that I kind of remember. So sure enough, he was an abolitionist. And as I kept going back and back and back, so yes, I, I eventually uh, found out about um, about the New York riots, which is basically where we're going with this, when I saw that Emily West's uh, employment contract with James Morgan had actually been uncovered. And on it, you see her signature, you see James Morgan's signature, you see the attorney's signature, but you also see the name of Simon Joycelyn. So um, as I started researching Simon Joycelyn, which was a name that I thought I remembered from my history lessons and from the past and other, other things that I had been doing, um, sure enough, he was a very large abolitionist. And um, she moves there at the same time that he moves there. There is some, uh, although not very strongly researched evidence, that she may have been with him. Now, he was married. He had a family. So I'm not saying that this was kind of a, a, a mistress relationship or anything like that. I, I don't think that. Um, but she may have been somehow attached to him. Either she uh, was someone that was involved with his abolitionist um, efforts. Maybe she was someone that they knew. They were about the same age, or maybe they were friends, things like that. So they end up in New York. And yes, they do become very much attached to Arthur Tappan. When um, Arthur Tappan, uh, of course, we all know that he was the one who basically funded the abolitionist movement, they start the Phoenix Society, um, Simon and Arthur Tappan do. And in the book, you're right, there's a very, uh, you, you could not make this up in Hollywood. This is a very true story of what it was like to basically live in what I think of as race wars. Mm-hmm. Um we think we're in a race war now. We think we're in a gender uh, war right now. We think that Me Too does so much. But this was real race war. I mean, people's homes were being burnt down. People were being attacked. Riots were happening in New York that lasted for days. Yeah, people's over church's were- use, of all things. I mean, and yeah, church uses. Um, right, you're right about that. That's a um, yes. <laughs> um, fake news. We're all so upset about fake news today. Oh, my God, what is Facebook going to do during the next election? If you only knew how bad fake news could be, you should read this book. Because the journalist at the time, um, uh, Mr. Webb, um, who also ends up having a very interesting uh, link to Texas, um, basically has been working to create this idea of the new Washington port. So... He has, in my mind, a very real reason to create these fake stories, exploit the black African-American experience in New York, saying things like, um, well, you know, your dandies are going up and down the street and they're trying to uh, to, to marry all of your white women. Dandy being the, the what you might call a, a very negative term for an educated black man or African-American man who was a free person of color and probably dressed nice because he had the funds to do so like anybody else would. So um, all of this was going on in New York at the time. And I think where you're wanting me to go with it is that eventually it all converges on this church meeting where, uh, you know, Mr. Webb is putting out fake news. Other people are just like they do today. Other people are trying to combat the fake news. It all blows up because everybody starts listening to the fake news. And there are these major, major, major riots that go on in New York. 
Um, so one of the things that I find very interesting about that period is that it shows um, a, a conversation that I think is very important to have, and that is that everyone was complicit in the the issues of race. Yeah. Everyone. It doesn't matter where you came from, South, you came from the Mid-Atlantic, if you came from New York, if you came from, it, it didn't matter. Everyone had their own ways of doing the same thing. Some uh, on the continuum might be lesser physical, um, physical, physical, and more might be more emotional. Um, but anyway, Emily did survive. I believe she was there. I believe that she saw it. I cannot um, really know exactly whether she was living with Simeon Joyceland or if she was um, living in Five Points, which was the neighborhood where all of the um, riots were happening. But she definitely experienced it. And so I think, in my mind, I think that would be a reason that you might want to come to Texas because another abolitionist named Benjamin Lundy had traveled to Mexico. And this was still around the same time that Stephen F. Austin is um, starting his uh, Austin's Colony. Um, all the settlers, you know, Texas is very hot. Everyone wants to come to Texas. And Ben Lundy gets a contract with the Mexican government to start nothing more, very clearly, a free people of color colony, a free black colony in Texas. Um, he has the land for it. Lots of people want to help him with it. That includes some of the pacifists in uh, Texas history, um, which is another area we don't really talk about, that there was a very big split in Texas. And some people believed that Texas would remain with Mexico, and some people believed that Texas should become a, an independent nation. And then some people wanted it to get its independence and then become um, part of the U.S. slave uh, state, which is what it did. But there were lots of different ideologies running around at that time. And so when um, uh, Benjamin Lundy gets his contract or his grant to, to build the colony, there are some people in Texas who do support him in that. And as he goes back to New York, he finds that lots of people want to come to Texas and they would be happy to live in a free black colony. Of course, the war happens and the free black colony never occurs. But I do believe that there were people from New York who probably came down with James Morgan. And Emily may have been one of those people. And when she came down, she thought that she could be there and be one of the first people to live in what they hoped would have been a much more peaceful and uh, tranquil existence than the one they were experiencing in New York. Um, that didn't happen. And of course, Emily's life, I feel like probably changes in the most um, unexpected and very, uh, very uh, difficult way. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you for asking me about that because very, very few people, ever really want to talk about um, any of the research that I've done in those areas. So yeah, thank you for that. Well, not only are you good at doing that research, but you also, I mean, you talk about battles very well because people will talk about the Alamo, but there's other massacres, you know, of, of Texas fighters that happen too uh, in the book. Yeah. And you bring that up as well. And you also, I mean, the way you describe the battles is very well written. And the way you talk about what happened that led up to Emily's 72 hours in captivity 
and that led up to her maybe becoming a, or being you know connected to being the yellow rose in the song is very well yeah. done as well yeah one of the things that i really felt was important when you talk about the um the battles and thank you for saying that i did a good job on the battles because it's very important to do a good job on the battles um i i really tried to find people who uh, who were there as close to the time as possible. So I really worked very, very hard to get primary sources from like the 1880s, uh, the 1900s, um, just so that I could get an, an idea of Texas history as it stood um, with people who were very, very, still very close to the experience of Texas as a new state. Um, and I was able to find that. I was able to find some historians and some teachers and some accounts of interviews and first-person accounts um, all around that time. So the idea of the battles and the idea of San Jacinto and the one that I wanted to take on that was not to just look at it and not just to look at um, the battles from the Texas perspective, but also to try to find something from the Mexican perspective, because that's very much a void in Texas history. Um, we don't really talk about what were the Mexicans thinking about Santa Ana, what were they experiencing, what was their life like? And so um, I was able to find some first person accounts that incorporate that into the battle. So I hope that what happens from that is um, that, and not by any means is this the final account. I really think of this as a starting place um, for incorporating the Mexican experience into the Battle of San Jacinto. Um, this is just a starting place for it. I could have done much, much more. Um, but I do hope that what I have done begins people thinking in terms of, oh, there was another side to this war. There was another experience that we haven't really been talking about. Um, and as far as Emily goes, um, yes, I think the experience of the the refugees during the runway scrape, the experiences of the prisoners, um, those are those are completely blank um, experiences in Texas history that no one I think has ever even uh, tried to to start incorporating. And so I do hope that as people read the book um, that that they find some educational value to it as much as being entertained. And I do try to entertain people. I, I don't want history to be boring. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and she was captured, correct? Yes, she was captured. Um, and that's where part of the legend, in fact, if she had not been captured, the legend probably wouldn't even exist. Um, yes. So when um, Santa Ana started his siege, he went, uh, he came into New Washington, he burns, burns it down, he takes the prisoners, um, and then she is part of that group. She may have also been taken with people who came down. You know, she did come down to Texas with other people. Um, they may have still been there. Uh, I think that New Mexico, New Washington, I'm sorry, New Washington was a very important part of um, getting the people from the runway scrape down to Galveston. Um, there was, you know, James Morgan was using all of his boats, his schooners, whatever you want to call them, but his boats, he was using all of them to take people down to Galveston. So he left, you know, and this was very, very common during the runway scrape. The men left and the women and the workers and everybody else who was not going to go off to fight in the battle 
were just kind of left there to take care of themselves, which is a completely interesting aspect of the war that I think has been underreported and under-researched. This idea that men went off to battle, but women are still left behind. And workers and the older people, so even if you had men, they were probably older. If, um, you know, they, they were all still there. So I believe that when New Washington was, um, was active, there were people coming in from the runway scrape. They were getting on the boats. They were leaving. Um, it was also the site of uh, the Texas rebel government. So that's one of the reasons that I believe Santa Ana wanted to go to it, because he was looking for the president of the, of the rebels. He was looking for, for Burnett. And um, why would you not be looking for the president of the rebels? Of course you want to find them. We want to find them today. We want to find the head of ISIS. So um, while people argue, and there was um, argue about the relevancy of what Santa Ana was doing, to me, it makes sense. He was trying to find the president, and he wanted to find the president, and he wanted to use him in the same way that we would do it today in a military um, offense. So yes, to get back to your point, um, he takes the prisoners, and then he takes them to San Jacinto. Now, why he chose the spot in San Jacinto, I don't go down that road too much because I, as you can tell, there are many avenues that could take me away from Emily. I really wanted to stay close to Emily. So she's there. I believe that she probably was simply there with the other prisoners. Um, we don't know what Emily looks like. Uh, people think they knew what she looked like. We think we have some real evidence that she was beautiful, that she was mulatto or biracial or multiracial, whatever term you want to use. Um, I don't know that. I, I don't know that. But she's there. I don't really know that she captured Santa Ana's attention. I feel like um, she probably did know Santa Ana. I believe that she was probably working with one of his officers more than he was. She was probably talking to him because, by most accounts, he did not speak English. If he did speak English, he certainly didn't speak it enough to be able to interrogate a prisoner. I believe that the prisoners from New Washington were very valued. I believe that she was part of that group that was very valued in the sense that she knew what was happening at a port that was funding the revolution that was one of the headquarters for the rebel government and she knew what people were leaving New Washington and going to Galveston. So anyone who was left behind after James Morgan went down to the island um, was very valuable to Santa Ana. And do I think that she was in a tent with him? I absolutely do believe she was in a tent with him. What was she doing inside of that tent? Um, I think she was probably being interrogated. Yeah. Um, what was she being interrogated for? How much did she tell Santa Ana? I don't know, because at this point, it is sheer speculation regarding whether or not she knew that the rebel government wanted to make the Republic a slave state. If she knew that and believed it, 
that probably could have changed her um, view of the land that she was working in. If she didn't know that, um, maybe she told him something different. But yes, you're right. Um, in the book, I say she may have told Santa Ana a lot, or she may have told him a little. We don't know. Do you but think too? It could just been just, hey, I got to survive. Yes, yes, very, very much so, very much so. Now, another interesting aspect of uh, the battle that um, we haven't talked about yet was the fact that she lost her freedom papers there. Freedom papers were the papers that told um, white people that this person was a free person of color, a free black woman. This, these were the papers. She kept them on her. That's normally what you did with them. You guarded them with your life. We've all heard them. Uh, we've all seen the movie 12 Years a Slave. That was another thing that was going on in New York when she was living there. If you didn't have your free papers, if you weren't careful, you could easily be kidnapped and brought down to Texas, uh, to the South and to Texas and be sold as a slave. Um, so these were all things that were very important to her. So she had her papers when she was uh, taken prisoner. So Santa Ana had to have known, or Almonte, who was one of his officers, who did speak very, very good English and knew a lot about the American culture and very much, you know, in some ways liked Americans. Um, he, he would have known she was a free person of color. So he would have known that she was not a slave. He would have known that she was here. He probably knew why she was here. He was very, very well versed in American culture and society and politics. He probably very well knew that Benjamin Lundy had a grant for a free black colony in Texas. So they probably actually had a lot to talk about, probably a lot more than Santa Ana and her. So um, anyway, my point to all of that is that, um, well, I've kind of lost my point to all of that. Um, oh, her free person, free people. I got it. Okay. So the point to all of that is that her free freedom papers were lost on the battlefield. And when they were lost on the battlefield, you have to wonder why were they lost on the battlefield? Well, if you read the account of what happened during the Battle of San Jacinto, it was a gruesome battle. It was, it was a 12 minute, very, very quick battle, but it was a battle that went on with a lot of overkill. And the overkill went on for hours and hours and days. It was not, um, it was not a pleasant place to be. Um, so you can imagine the things that she probably went through on the battlefield that would have caused her to lose her freedom papers. We have no, um, no documentation on what happened to the prisoners when they were trying to survive the battle, as you say. Um, we have no real, uh, real hard evidence at all about what happened to the prisoners. And so I go back to the idea that the runway scrape and the prisoners of the Texas Revolution are kind of a void. That's kind of a big black hole. We don't really know what happened, but you can imagine what may have yeah. happened that would cause a woman to lose her freedom papers if they are on her in a place where she knows they can't come out. You know, they are secure on her. So after battle, what happens is that um, Sam, Sam Houston needs to find out who everybody is. <laughs> he needs to go get everybody. So 
he sends out his men to get um, what you call the spoils of war. They also do a couple of things to try to flush out any of the the Mexican uh, soldiers that are still out there, and they try to get all the prisoners. So when you when all of that happens, he brings each person in front of Sam Houston, and they tell him the story. And at that point, he probably would have realized that um, Emily was not a, a, a slave. She was not, um, if she did have Indian uh, heritage in her, she did not, you know, she was not Mexican. Um, if she had Mexican heritage, you know, anything like that, he would have known everything about her. So anyway, um, at that point, he lets her go. He, he lets her go. And she tells him that, you know, he had to have known that she lost her freedom papers because he let her go as a free black woman. So here's the interesting thing after that happens. And there's a lot of other things that happen during the aftermath of the San Jacinto battle, which you're right, I do, um, I do talk about. Um, but for Emily, she then spends a good portion of her time trying to stay off the auction block. And the reason she's doing that is because she doesn't have her freedom papers, but Texas is in a weird little state right then. And if you don't have your freedom papers, you can be sold on the slave auction block. So she uh, somehow, in ways that no one knows, um, maybe she was staying with someone who was at the battle, uh, who was protecting her, but she definitely had some sort of protection. And she doesn't leave until a year later, like the summer of 1837 is when she actually leaves. So she spends a lot of time in Texas when I say a lot of times, she spends many months in Texas trying to um, figure out how to get out. And um, the in interesting thing about that is that she still has to jump through some hoops. She has to jump through some political and government hoops to make that happen. But she does. And eventually she does get um, Isaac, Mor uh, Isaac Moreland. Um, I believe that's the last name, Moreland, um, who was running the cannons at the battle. And he verifies that, yes, she said she was a free person of color and that she lost her freedom papers on the battle. And I have no reason to believe that she's not telling the truth. That's where it all stops. Um, we don't know if she got her passport. We don't know if she left. We don't know if she stayed. We don't know what happened to her. We don't know if Morgan ever paid her the money she was due for working for him at the port. We don't know if the people that she came from New York with, did she leave with them? We don't know. Um, we don't know any of that. We assume, we assume that she left and got on a boat and went to New York, and I hope that she did. But if she did go to New York, did she, did she reenter um, a life that was any better than the life that she left in Texas, which, you know, bottom line is, the woman lived in a very, very dangerous time to be a single free person of color. And she clearly was doing it and doing it with a sense of empowerment. Yeah. And it was, I hate that we don't know anything more about her, but the fact that we do have so much that is uncovered in the book is incredible. And it's worth the read, um, not just for her story, but everything else that goes along with it. There's, there's so much that drives the narrative um, that we didn't even scratch the surface of um, talking. Oh, thank you. 
Yeah, yeah, we still have, you know, we still have now the song and we have Emily, but we don't have Emily connected to the song yet. And that doesn't happen for a very, very long time. It doesn't happen until almost 100 years later. Um, and there's a lot of intrigue. Yes, you're right. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of um, what I call um, disrespect uh, of, a, of a writer's work. Um, I don't say that in the book, but I feel like that. I feel like this, uh, the essay that everyone points to as the basis for her having been a femme fatale at the, for Sam Houston at the battle um, was probably, well, as, as a writer myself and as a journalist myself, I know that I write tons and tons and tons of things during my career, and some of it never sees the light of day. And some of it does. And what sees the light of day is what I want to see the light of day. If I've written something and I don't want it to be published, I don't want it to be published. So, and that was the case of William Bollard. Um, he wrote an essay that he did not intend to have published and it was published after his death. And that's kind of the genesis for connecting Emily to the song. And I really hate to say it, but once again, journalists are creating fake news and really the legend is nothing more than fake news. Yeah. So, I mean, just to be clear, so you think that by the fact that he did not want that to get out, that doesn't lead any credence that could be anything to it then either that way. He was just writing. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. Well, um, in the book, I go into very deep detail, as you know, um, about how that was brought out. But yeah, so you, you bring up a good point in the book. I know where you're going with this. Let's see. So in the um, 1800s, England would hire what you would call travelers. They were called travelers, but they were a mixture of writers, um, journalists, uh, novelists, any, anything, a historian, they could be any kind of a person. But what they did is they went around and they wrote down the stuff that they saw. They saw things, so they wrote it down. And William Bollard was one of them. At the time, he was part of a very large group of them that were over here. Uh, William Gray, uh, Fairfax was one of them. There were there were all kinds of people that were, that were doing it. Um, but anyway, uh, William Bollard was not sent over to document Sam Houston or document politics or document um, anything like that. He was actually sent over to study the topography and the soil of Texas to see if it was going to be a good place for Britain to use as a cash crop nation. That's basically what he was doing. He was coming over and looking to see if, if if Texas would be a good place for Britain to use when it became a a a republic. So in many ways, it was simply a case of England trying to figure out what value Texas would have to England. So they were sending these travelers over, and his was to document the geography, the topography, the soil anything like that, so that it could be used for an agricultural uh, cash crop kind of trade nation. So that's what he was doing. All this other stuff that he found out was just stuff that he wrote down. 
He does uh, meet Sam Houston. He meets a lot of important people. That's one of the things that all the travelers did. They had access to the top people in Texas at the time. So he knows Sam Houston. And somewhere along the way, he has written a essay about a woman named Emily who was at the battle and that she was supposed to be um, a femme fatale. She was supposed to have been closeted. That's another term that we may want to explore. What does closeted mean? Well, eventually, uh, some journalists in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, they decide that the term closeted means sexual escapades. And they take this essay that was never supposed to be uh, released. Uh, at this point, William Bollard in his lifetime actually put that aside. He put it in an envelope. He wrote private on it. He, uh, the, the letter, the essay is part of a very controversial um, existence. Its existence is just controversial and its use is controversial in many, many ways. But to me, having been someone who writes things and does not intend for them to be public, I believe he did that. He did not put that in his volumes of work that he returned to the British government. He kept that private. And there was many, many opportunities in Britain during that time for a traveler to get their work published. So if he wanted it published, he would have gotten it published. So the fact that it was un uh, was opened and used and got out into the mainstream and then became part of this manufacturing of this woman's life, to me, is a misuse of a writer's work. Um, that's kind of what I feel. So you can take any part of that and cut it out, fix it up any way you want to. Yeah, I know, I know there's going to be people who... Are gonna want to, you know, they grew up with the song. They're gonna want to believe the song, yes. uh, but I would just yes. say read the book and maybe open your eyes to something new. And uh, you know, it's yeah. Uh, I believe you got some yeah. pretty good evidence in your book to go. You know, that helps you maybe you yeah. know reach a conclusion one way or the other. You kind of you do in your book kind of leave it. Hey, here's what I have for you. You still have to make your own decision about it. You you know you you leave it open for you to make your own interpretation historically for it. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say this about um, this, what I found. I did not expect to find this myself. Um, I believe that there are probably some people who are deep into Texas history and, and dedicate their entire lives to studying Texas history, and they probably knew about this. But um, when I found it out for myself, um, and all of this was done by myself, um, uh, and and with, um, as you can tell in the book, too, I do get involved with some uh, some historians and um, museum curators who do work with Texas history. So I feel like the, the legend has a place in Texas. I mean, what I grew up believing the Yellow Rose was is different than what people in the 50s thought it was, and it's different than, say, someone in elementary school today. I mean, it has changed with time. It has evolved over time. There were very distinct periods in our 
um, lives as Texans when you did not connect Emily to the song. So um, it's very clear. I mean, the Yellow Rose Award is not really connected to, to Emily and to this salacious tale, but it is given as a form of um, recognition for women who have done great things to benefit the state and to benefit their communities. And so I think that when you look at the story of Emily, I think there's a very, very important story that needs to be honored um, as a woman who was clearly felt empowered and clearly overcame, as you mentioned, very, very difficult obstacles. She survived and there's nothing to be um, taken away from that. And maybe as we move forward in the way that we look at these stories that we grew up with, we can find new meaning inside of them. um, And we can find our own way to have our own Texas yellow rose. Wow. Well said. (laughs) Well said. I think we might leave it at that. Wow. That's cool. Oh, cool. I'm (laughs) sorry. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today and for taking time to talk with me. You can find The Yellow Rose of Texas, The True Story of Emily West, at your local bookstore or online at ArcadiaPublishing.com. Be sure to give us a like and rate us on whichever platform you listen to and share with your friends. As always, I want to thank Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for our theme song, and you can find them on Facebook by searching for Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. If you have any questions or if you have any future show suggestions, please reach out to me at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode.